welcome to episode four of Evangelion, the Neon Genesis Evangelion Rewatch Podcast. My name is Mike Kelly. And I'm April Lynn Cowett. Today we're going to be talking about episodes 11 through 13. Uh, just a quick uh, disclaimer before we start. Uh, you may hear some thunder on the uh, background recording. I'm currently in the middle of a massive thunderstorm uh, and have gotten uh, a flash flood warning. But I'm not in a flood zone, so I'll still be able to podcast. So, well, Mike, you're not in your soundproof recording booth? God, if only. If only I had a soundproof <laughs> recording booth. Uh, you may have also heard my cat on previous recordings. She's she's fed in full, so she at least won't be making any noise. Yeah, we'll see about that. I'll I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> yeah, me too, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, so uh, today we're going to be covering, uh, as April said, episodes 11 through 13. And we're going to start with uh, episode 11, which is In the Still Darkness, or The Day That Tokyo 3 Stood Still. Um, this is... Uh, uh, Kind of another one of these Monster of the Week kind of ton of episodes uh, that we've seen, but, uh, you know, continuing the action arc. But uh, one thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit that we are seeing over the, the rest of these episodes as well is that we are seeing we are seeing a lot of uh, evolution in these angels. We are seeing mm-hmm. a lot of we're seeing a lot of them trying to adapt and change their tactics up on, you know, how they're attacking nerve and how they're attacking humanity. And like this angel is actually takes a different tactic altogether at the beginning. She, uh, I guess he, she, I don't, they're not gendered, I guess. It, it, uh, it cuts the power. Uh, and so much so that like Gendo is saying that like, uh, he initially thinks it's a human saboteur because Gendo is kind of paranoid and playing all sides, but they're really, these angels are attempting to adapt and, it kind of draws like another stark uh, comparison with humanity. Uh, they are both adapting, and again, humanity has to adapt in a certain way, uh, especially in the end here when the kids actually make up their own tactics because they can't get in touch with control mm-hmm. to actually take out this angel. This is one of those things that I think has become kind of a major theme in uh, Evangelion, and this about. Uh, we'll see this in the later episodes as well, but like the evolution of humanity and the angels, uh, the, not just in the different forms they take, but in the different like approaches to attacking that they take. What did you think of this angel, I guess? Uh, uh, well, first of all, it was freaking creepy. Yeah, giant spider. Well, six legs. Uh, yeah, I don't remember how many legs it had, but basically a giant daddy mm-hmm. long legs and yeah. uh, with very um, occult looking eyes. Yeah, the, I actually looked up those eyes because I swear I had seen them before. They are actually the image of an open eye is kind of a. a it's an Illuminati traditional symbol, right? Well, it's a lot of things is the thing. So it's actually also in the Zohar, which is the or the the Jewish Kabbalah. Oh, okay. Uh, it's also used in uh, like evil eye charms. Uh, right. That, uh, you know, like I think damn near every culture across the world has. Again, also, that's a little bit of incidental imagery. I'm not quite yeah, sure. I don't. I don't think that that was meant to be symbolic of anything other than it. You know, drawing some, just borrowing from that idea of mysticism to make it seem more alien. Yeah, um, and I think that that's something. I mean, we've definitely seen some angels that look more alien than others. For instance, the mirrored. Um, Octo, I don't remember the name, the, the eight-sided um, oh, prism. Oh, the, the floating, 
yeah, uh, the, thing. The one that drills into the geosphere, um, geo. Oh yeah, the geofront. Yeah, uh, yeah. He had it. It again. I'm gendering these. I shouldn't be gendering these. <laughs> the thing had a name. Um, they all had yeah. names apparently, but we haven't gotten there yet. Oh yeah, fair, fair. <laughs> um, but these three in particular were all very alien. None of them were bipedal. None of them looked mm. like sea creatures or under any sort of underground creatures. They were completely outside of human experience. Uh, I mean, this one was sp- a spider. Like so, yeah. of of the three, it's definitely the most closest resembling a human a. a earth creature yeah but those eyes made it okay this is this is not just a spider (laughs) yeah this is otherworldly in a way um but yeah um and even i mean for for me these three episodes kind of blend together as one so i might Mm -hmm. end up commenting on some things that happened in a different episode but yeah that's fair um at one point one of them is you know the characters in the show even start commenting on how the angels are evolving before their eyes yeah um, and adapting, and that that's one of the characteristics of life. I mean, but evolution also has to do with um, what are they evolving towards? Like, what is the goal of this evolution? Um, and I'm not quite sure what the angels are like. So, I mean, there, obviously there's no, no such thing as natural selection here going on. Right. Because, you know, there's only about um, a dozen of these angels that we've seen so far. Uh, but it is, uh, they seem to be trying to be more effective in what they're doing. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to think, I tried to think of what that could be. And the only thing that really came to mind is I think they just want to become scarier. Like they want to instill fear in, uh, the humans. Uh, I mean, a giant spider would strike fear in a lot of humans, including myself. Mm -hmm. If I saw it walking down the street. Um, the second one is like literally a, uh, an orbital bombardment. And the third one is damn near invisible. Right. Um, and it's almost, it's vaguely like, I don't think it's consciously pulling from this, but like I had whiffs of like Lovecraftian or cosmic horror mm-hmm. coming from these things. And I'm, I was just wondering if like, is that their goal? Is that their goal to actually get, uh, attack humans or get into nerve as like, uh, the attacking human seems almost secondary to their goal of getting into nerve and getting mm-hmm. to the geofront. Yeah. I mean, up until this point, and even now, we don't have any indication that the angels are even sentient. Yeah. That they have consciousness. Mm-hmm. Um, they almost seem in their tactics more viral mm. than anything. That yeah. I don't think. I don't know if they have tactic how I guess the, the the idea of them trying to be scary. Mm-hmm. I don't know if they have a notion of creating fear mm-hmm. in that sense, but it definitely seems like their goal I mean obviously their goals are related to nerf because as yeah. far as we know there are no other angels attacking earth than yeah. the ones that are attacking nerf. True. So what is it about nerve that they're trying to get at? Is it someone? Is it something? Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler I mean, alert. I think it's Adam. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we'll uh, get into but, that a bit. A couple episodes ago, uh, 
they at sea uh, an angel attacked where adam was because kaji was uh ferrying that so right it seems to be that's what they're after right exactly so that's the only time that we've seen them attacking something other than nerve headquarters or yeah. the evas uh so it has mm. something to do with them but what that is we don't know yet yeah i'm 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 not sure i but clearly like these angels have come a long way from where they were at the beginning and they're getting I wouldn't say they're getting more successful, but they're at least trying different fronts. And mm-hmm. um, again, whether that is conscious or not, uh, or again, some kind of like mutation of some sort or aberration that gets them in, I don't know. That could very well be uh, what's going on. For this episode, I'd like to talk about the interplay between science and technology and human versus nature. Science has been celebrated so far uh, a lot as the solution for all of humanity's problems. And in these episodes in particular, they talk about that. Uh, And they also show how that dependence can be a weakness and even hubris to a point, and how human ingenuity is still necessary. What I really noticed as I was thinking about this idea of science versus humanity in this episode in particular uh, their technology. Yep. Wow. That's quite the storm there. Yeah. It's just a little bit of thunder here. folks. <laughs> uh, in this episode in particular, they have lost a lot of their technology. Uh, mm. Their power has been cut off. They are left to doing things manually. Um, thunder distracted me too. It's all right. It's all right. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. What I was going to say is at some points, especially as the three children are brute forcing their way into Nerve headquarters, mm. their personalities, they seem almost to be caricatures of themselves. Their bit, reactions yeah. and responses are just so them. And yeah. it occurred to me that maybe this wasn't intentional, but that the idea that their all their personalities are even more on display now that they don't have technology to hide behind. Mm. Um. That might be a stretch. It was a one of those thoughts of brilliance that probably wasn't so brilliant afterwards. But I mean, I mean, my read on that was not necessarily. I think there's definitely a factor: the fact that like they are like set adrift without their technology. But I think it's also they're unsupervised mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah, that's uh, true. And like they're completely cut off from contact with damn near everyone. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, they. Given that, you know, they're a little bit freer to be kids, uh, for lack of yeah. a better term. Yeah. But uh, so the episode starts with them having this moment of peace, mm. you know, for a change. There aren't the loud buzzing cicadas. It's just birds. Yeah. It's it's very calm and people are doing their chores. They're living their normal lives. For At this point, I think the only person yeah. we've really seen being particularly casual is Masato and a couple scenes mm. of Ritsuko spending time with her. Yeah. We see that and they have that conversation on the train with the deputy commander about the Magi. Mm-hmm. And they learn that the government of the entire city is run by the three supercomputers that are housed at yep. Nerve. And one of the other staff members comments how science is amazing and it can solve all of humanity's problems. Yeah. And that's kind of the overview of these three episodes here is this idea that science and, te- science and technology 
are saviors in a way. There's something that Nerve certainly worships as an organization. Well, I mean, there's there's certainly the interplay of um, humanity and and technology or slash science. Like, I think that there's differing maybe factions to those beliefs within Nerve. Certainly. Um, like, uh, I mean, we saw a little bit uh, with um, what was the episode with the uh, the JA? Um, uh, that was pure science. That was pure mm-hmm. autonomous, no human controller, right. no nothing. Uh, and it took a human to go and well, theoretically shut it down, uh, even though it, right. was, it was actually Gendo. The the Evangelians are this weird fusion of science and humanity in a weird right. way because they are technology, but they they require humanity to function. Yes. I, they're, they're organic too, to some to some extent. We're not quite sure why. Yeah, and spoiler alert: as we're going to find out in a few episodes, they actually have the technology that they run on is based on human personality. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely, well, it's definitely alluded to, I don't know if we know it yet, but I think it's a safe assumption. Uh, like, well, she, so they talk about in the third episode in this batch, um, as they're talking about the Magi computers mm-hmm. and that Ritsuko's mother yeah. is embedded in the three computers or her personality is anyways, um, mm-hmm. They say that the same technology, that same technology is used in the Evas. So, oh, oh, they explicitly said it. They say that. Oh, they don't They don't explicitly say, make draw the connection that that means that there's human personality embedded mm-hmm. in the Evas and start to question what that is. Um, True. But they do specifically say that the t- same technology that runs the Magi computers, in fact, the Magi are the kind of not quite prototype, but they're the test of that technology mm. is then the technology that went on to create the Evas. And that's a good parallel with the angels as well, because uh, if the, if the Evangelion programming for lack of a better term uh, is based on human personality and whatnot, and we don't necessarily even know if the angels are sentient at this point, right? Like that also sets up that dichotomy that like, again, this is humanity against an otherworldly, implacable foe uh like like a law of nature like science Mm -hmm. and but at the same time we do know that the angels are also a combination of technology and organic matter yeah they're a fusion they're kind of the uh uh, the synthesis of both of those things Mm -hmm. um yeah and we're going to get a little bit more in in some later episodes about you know the nature of uh the evangelians and what their actual nature is but again it's tough to get a clear read on what they're trying to say, though. I mean, mm-hmm. it, is it like like clearly the 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 lesser not lesser the uh, subordinate folks uh, at Nerve are like, yeah, science is going to save us, blah 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 blah. The humanity aspect of it is something that's championed by someone like a uh, Misato, who like again, I don't think they're trying to say anything definitively that one is better than the other, one has different uh, or, or clear advantages over the other. But I think it is like, you know, this is what we want to play with. This is mm-hmm. what we want to think about. Um, yeah, I actually, this this was a really rich episode for me. Mm. Uh, just watching the way that the three children interacted with one another. There are a lot of great little character bits. Um, 
uh, like when there's a shot at one point of the kids walking mm-hmm. and uh, I just noticed this uh, uh, Oscar's wearing flats and Ray is wearing sneakers. Like Ray is ready for action at any moment. Whereas Oscar mm-hmm. is a little bit more concerned with her image, I guess. Oh, and we're going to talk about the contrast between Ray and Asuka. Uh, when they finally figure out, okay, we're not getting into Nerve through any of these yeah. automatic entry points. And Shinji says, what do we do? And Rei, without even hesitating, pulls out her emergency manual, at which point Asuka remembers, oh, I have an emergency manual, starts looking for it, can't find it. Yeah. Rei comes up with a plan of action. And Asuka immediately takes charge and says, well, I'm the best leader. <laughs> yeah. Even though Ray is the only the one in this entire scene that has any clue what they should be doing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, again, it is one of those things of Asuka wants to appear powerful. Ray doesn't care about appearing powerful. She just wants to get the job done. Mm-hmm. Um, again, those kids on full display and Shinji in this one is kind of along for the ride, uh, trying to blend into the background as, as Shinji is wont to do. Yeah, and then so on that same topic, another interesting uh, moment, I guess, for Asuka after Ray has said something particularly Ray like, <laughs> Asuka yeah. says, Geez, the first is scary. She's the sort who thinks the ends justify the means, a real holier than thou type. And I'm oh like, Well, Lord. that's that's rich coming from you, Asuka. <laughs> uh, again, she's blaming everyone else for what she sees in herself. It's so. And that's where that's why I started thinking, man, it's just like everything that we know about these three characters so far mm. is right there in the open at the moment. There is a little bit of growth, I think, in terms of some of the stuff that's going on, like the the battle at the end where, I mean, Ray immediately volunteers to take the most dangerous job of defense. Mm-hmm. And then Asuka's like, nope, I'm doing it. There's a, a certain bit of recognition there that she owes Shinji. Um, yeah, like, well, it's not even a little bit. She explicitly says, yeah. I owe Shinji for saving my life. I'm going to do this. But it was, I do think that was a real growth moment for her for mm-hmm. to let somebody else take the lead and shine mm-hmm. and for her to sacrifice herself for him Yeah. Um, when nobody's watching. Yeah, like no one could be watching. Maybe that's why she did it. Maybe that like, hadn't could occurred be part to me. Of it. Yeah, like, you know, well, no one's going to see it anyway, so let's just do this this way or something like that. I don't know. It, it, I think it I think it reads better as if it is a growth moment that she's it, like, it, well, specifically because she you know, in some of the earlier episodes when it comes down to it for her to go off script as we've said, she has no idea. And mm. here she on her own comes up with the plan that saves everything. Yeah. Uh, and it's a good plan. Yeah, it works almost flawlessly. So, yeah, I definitely think this is Asuka's big moment. For I mean, these it's a episodes. little bit of an inversion from, from the last episode where she's down in the volcano and needs help. Now she's getting help, so. Mm-hmm. There was one other moment that I wanted to bring up that actually kind of feeds back into what we were talking about, the technology and humanity aspect of mm-hmm. things. Um, so after the whole thing is is done uh said and done the kids are on uh, like a hilltop or something like that staring up at the stars and they're Mm -hmm. kind of talking about um you know why they fight and all that kind of stuff and ray has a moment where she says something and it's it's one of the first things that's not very functional it's it's almost philosophical and she says something to the along the lines of 
man fears the darkness, so he scrapes away at it with at the edges of it with fire. Mm-hmm. When they're talking about the lights of the city. Mm-hmm. Number one, Ray saying that is like, okay, we're seeing a little bit of her interior life. Like, this is what she thinks about. Right. Uh, or what she ponders. The other part is that, like, she's talking about man using technology against an other. Man using technology against uh, the unknowable. Mm-hmm. But again, she calls it fire and scraping away at the edges of it. Like, it's still dangerous to her. Mm-hmm. Um, she still sees the use of technology as it can be potentially dangerous. And, like, she is literally in an Eva that is, you know, fire scraping away at the edges of darkness, which are the angels, I guess, in her in her mind. Or at least that's how I read it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Ray is, is starting to... It's not necessarily a surprise that she had that thought, because she clearly has an interior life she reads and stuff like that, but that she vocalized it. Like that she right. actually confided in Shinji and Asuka uh, about what she's thinking. And it's a little awkward. Like, you know, when you say something like that to your friends, like clearly they're a little, okay. I don't know. I saw it as a little bit of a Ray's moving, moving as opposed to being static now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hadn't given that a lot of thought. I definitely had noticed that scene and thought about it in that, scope of science versus humanity and technology Mm. versus humanity and nature. Uh, But I hadn't given much thought to Ray's comment. And I think you're absolutely right. It's definitely out of character for her, as Mm. we've seen so far, to have any opinion on that and to share that opinion. So that's definitely uh, a prelude to, I think, what's coming next in the next three or four episodes but uh before we get to that though um is there anything else to say about this episode or should we move on to episode 12 i think let's move on all right so episode 12 is called a miracle's worth or she said don't make others suffer for your personal hatred which is a mouthful that is a long title yeah uh we're, we're starting to get in these more philosophical type uh uh, titles. A couple of them coming up will have like clear allusions to specific uh, pieces of work. This I don't know. Uh, this sounds like it's referring to something, but I don't think it actually is. Uh, unless you know what it's for. Nope. I have no <laughs> clue. I, and I didn't even think to look at it. Yeah, I, I googled it a little bit, but I just found people talking about the episode, so uh, right. or whatever that's worth. Uh, but yeah, like so, the the crux of this episode to me uh, is really the relationship that uh, Masato has with her father, and we've kind of heard a little bit here and there about Masato's father and second impact and stuff like that. And the beginning of the episode kind of starts with a flashback to the second impact, and this is the first time we've actually been able to see second impact, right? And it is this damn near massive hellscape uh, as something wakes up and Mm -hmm. spreads its wings like world encompassing wings over the earth. And that's not so much important. I'm sure we're going to learn more about it later, but Masato witnesses it. And, and more than witnessing it, she was saved from that almost certain destruction at the South pole by her father, um, who was on a research mission down there. We learn a lot about how Masato views her father in this, and it kind of helps explain her motivations towards Shinji, towards Gendo, uh, towards a lot of things. Uh, the, the, the thrust of it is that Masato's father was a, a, de- a man dedicated to his work, 
a man who was almost obsessive about his work to the point where his family life suffered and uh, his, uh, I think his wife left him. I don't think he left his wife because he was surprised by it. I think I remember her saying. Um, and Misato was angry at her father for uh, quite some time because she viewed him as the breakup of the family, like mm-hmm. the reason the family broke up. But the thing that kind of is almost kind of the crucible for Misato's life is he defies her expectations and saves her. Mm-hmm. She thought he was just endlessly dedicated to his work and nothing but and didn't care about his family but he saves her he puts her in that uh, little escape thing I don't know actually what it was and gets her out yeah he actually had a selfless moment and this is brought up in the context of like people asking like oh why did you uh, uh, why did you join Nerve Uh, Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I think it's this episode she's promoted to uh, Major Katsuragi yes and they're it's a natural kind of point to talk about so why did you get in and all that kind of stuff and the prevailing thought, especially by Ritsuka, seems to be like she wants revenge on the angels for killing her father. And that's actually not the case. Like the case is she joined Nerve because she wants to make sense of why he did what he did. And she wants revenge on him. She says it at one point in a flashback. You know, I'm, I'm still going to prove myself right or like uh, prove I could do it better than you did or something like that. Mm hmm. It's this very complex web of emotions that Masato has towards men, or I guess not necessarily men, but um, towards father relationships. And Which probably she, extends to her uh, idea about men. Oh, absolutely. Um, that's mentioned explicitly in a later episode, certainly. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I mean, it colors every, every part of her life, I think, like her, her professional life, her personal life. It's why she is so protective of Shinji. She sees Gendo being the same thing as her father, aloof, distant. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I think the difference there, and I think Masada recognizes this, that is that Gendo really lacks compassion, lacks, lacks self selflessness. That is the, the extra dagger into Shinji's back. In this episode, at the end of it, Gendo praises Shinji. He's like, good work, Shinji. And Shinji's ecstatic. He's like, my dad, he thinks they did a good job. And Misato has a look on her face that's just like, like, kid, like, he doesn't, like, <laughs> I, I've been through this before. Uh, it's, it's, it's very heartbreaking. And see, I missed that part, um, her look. Mm. I saw his reaction, which I wouldn't even say was ecstatic. I, was, I would say it was just baffled, because it's not something that he's used to. And it takes yeah. him a, a while to process, wait a minute, my father... I mean, he, he seems pleased, but he's also just confused. Yeah. When I say ecstatic, I mean ecstatic for Shinji in oh, that yeah. he actually has a visible reaction, <laughs> but yes. Okay, that's fair. Yeah, I, I mean, Shinji so, like, needs that, that you know, by the end of the episode, he's actually, like, he's, he's internalized it. He's like, I piled the Evangelion to hear my father praise me. And I'm like, mm-hmm. man, you're relying too much on someone who does not care about you. It's It's... It is it is an abusive relationship, and it is one that is continuing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, definitely. One thing in Asuka's favor here is that she recognizes it and says, like, really? That's why you pilot the Evangelion? <laughs> what are you so stupid? Which might be the first time I've ever agreed with Asuka. Um, but on the other hand, it's good. 
I think it's a good moment for Shinji to realize that he wants something other than mm. just freedom from pain. You know, that he actually does have a reason. And for him to have just some clarity about his motivations. Um, I think that that's a positive character development moment for him. Well, I, 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 the thing is, though, I'm not sure it's necessarily positive because, like, he's not doing it because it, I mean, it does kind of make him feel better, but in a perverse way. It, it mm-hmm. saves him from hurt. Like, I, I think he's got this, and this is me kind of like uh, trying to read Shinji a little bit here. He's kind of got this ache uh, of abandonment by his father mm-hmm. uh, and his mother passing. And his father praising him kind of takes away a little bit of that hurt. Like he really does care, but it, it, but it's really a delusion. It, it, it's mm-hmm. really him grasping onto whatever he can to make himself feel okay, as opposed to a strong moment of like self-actualization. Oh, I don't think that his reasons are good, but I think that him having the self-awareness for a moment is a breakthrough moment. Even Maybe. if even if he doesn't get to the point where he realizes that it's not a healthy yeah. realization. Um, he's realized something about himself. Yeah. I mean, Shinji has kind of defined himself by his lack of happiness. Um, this kind of, uh, what's the word? Anhedonia, uh, the inability to feel joy. Mm-hmm. And like, he has this moment where he actually is feeling positive. I don't know. I mean, it's tough to view it as a, it is a breakthrough. I agree with you. But it is such a – it's like drinking water and then finding out the water is, is sludge. Like, it's <laughs> – uh, which actually is kind of a good metaphor for all of Evangelion now that I think about it. It, it really is. Um, yeah. I think this might be the best that we can hope for. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I the more I watch this, the more I sympathize with Shinji and it's just like – but, I, I mean, I know like <laughs> roughly in Brosworth where this is going and again – like this is not a fairy tale. Yeah, I don't. I mean, it was a. Uh, it was one of those moments where there's there's so many emotions bundled mm-hmm, up in it that mm-hmm. you just can't help but stare at it. Yeah, I don't expect this to go well. Um, but I, I had at least a moment where I went, "Good for you, Shinji. You realized something about yourself." I'm, I'm proud. You're learning a little bit. Yeah, I. I, I mean, I also feel bad for Masato just because like. I think she sees it kind of the same way I see it. And it's like, mm-hmm. she she's probably torn between the same thing. It's good that you're feeling happiness, but it's bad that it's this kind of happiness you're feeling. Because mm-hmm. um, again, she's been there. So I have a couple of things that I really struck me about this episode. The first is that I was really fascinated by the contrast between Gendo and the deputy commander who you told me his name and I don't remember it. Uh, Fuyutsuki. I'm just going to keep calling him Deputy Commander. That's fair enough. (laughs) Um, So there's a scene where they are on a boat in the what used to be the South Pole Mm. and is now a wasteland of water and these pillars of land. Um, It's not even that the North Pole was destroyed. That would make that that would be one thing, but the mm. South Pole, which is currently a giant landmass in our world, yeah, in the world of Evangelion, it has been just shattered. 
Yeah. Uh, there is nothing left. So they're sailing through there and they're having this philosophical conversation reflecting on how it's turned into this hellish landscape. They both have very different views about that. So one of them says that you know, we're protected by science. The other one says that humanity, and I think this is Gendo, he says that uh, humanity makes up for its limited strength with science. Mm -hmm. And then the deputy commander responds that that arrogance is what caused the second impact. Yeah. And Gendo basically says, but yeah, but look, this is a world that's completely free of original sin. It is untainted. It's re returned to innocence. Mm. And the deputy commander says, mm, I think I prefer <laughs> being alive yep. <laughs> and the human world with all its sinfulness than this land of hell with nothing left. Yeah. Uh, and it just struck me that these two men who are supposedly both working towards the same goal are both working with this shadowy secret organization that we'll learn more about in future episodes. Um, but they still don't see eye to eye on what the ideal world looks like. Um, I mean, they're, it, it, they have a, the fact that they're actually talking about it as they go through is like, I think this guy might be Gendo's only friend because they can actually talk about this stuff mm, mm. in an open way uh, and have these kind of philosophical conversations, which is it's kind of weird to consider. Maybe friend is too strong a word. Um, <laughs> a professional. I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I, I, they have an interesting relationship, but I, I, I think friend as far as Gendo is concerned, that's probably mm. the closest thing he has to friends. So we'll, yeah. we'll call it that. One thing that also kind of struck me about this scene uh, that they're both going into is is the scene they're sailing on a, like a little boat tugboaty kind of thing I think, and again it is this lake of like red sky red blood shades of purple, mm -hmm. and Gendo is referring to this place in very very religious terms. Mm -hmm. He calls it a place as you said untainted by original sin. He's talking about, like, it is a literal dead sea that they're going through. And I had a real kind of moment, like, are they talking, or does Gendo view this place as heaven or hell? And I think that might be part of the dichotomy between him and, and Fiyutsuki. Mm. He see, uh, Fiyutsuki sees it as hell. Like, big thing happened here uh, as the result of man's sins. Mm-hmm. Gendo sees it as something that could, that wiped the slate clean and has the ability to make it a little bit more perfect mm -hmm. going forward. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. I definitely don't see any way that he could view it as heaven by any stretch of the imagination. Or maybe we we don't really understand Gendo very well. Um, but definitely that idea of the slate being wiped clean and a return to innocence. The religious imagery in these episodes was definitely interesting. Uh, the beginning of the episode where we see the wings of light unfurling, mm. the noise to me sounded suspiciously like horses. And that might yeah. have been incidental, but it definitely made me think of, you know, is this intentional? Is it an allusion to the horsemen of the apocalypse? Yeah. And clearly they are not commenting on any actual religion and any actual theology they're using all yeah. of these as symbols for you know the direction um is using these as symbols for whatever message they want to convey about 
purity and innocence and evil and whatnot. Taking more and more of those, borrowing that imagery is starting to feel more impactful. Yeah, they're they're definitely doing more with it now. Like, yeah, this place, this uh, episode is is chock full of that imagery, and they're actually beginning to play with it, and they're beginning to say like, okay, you can see something in two different ways. This like this is a place of sin. This is a place of innocence. Uh, this place looks like a cathedral. This place looks like a graveyard. Like mm-hmm. it's. It, this whole scene is very, very different in that dichotomy. I don't know necessarily where it's with the long-term effects of hell. I don't even know why Gendo's down there. Um, <laughs> Who knows? Why does Gendo do anything? No, totally. Totally. He's got his own reasons, but you, or you assume he has his reasons. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it, but one thing that kind of struck me again with the dichotomy of these two is that Gendo's very idealistic. Gendo is very like, he sees what he wants to create and is going to create it. Whereas Kozo is more like, you know, this is the world we have. Let's do what we can with it kind mm-hmm. of mentality. So there were a couple of other things that um, I wanted to talk about with this episode. One was this idea of who cares about who and What I mean about that is, so this is, I believe, the episode. So I believe this is the episode where they are having the promotion celebratory party for Masato, correct? Yep, that's the one. Um, So the two, Shinji's two classmates recognize that Masato has gotten promoted before he does, Mm. before Asuka knows. Mm -hmm. And they accuse the children of not caring about other people. Basically, you tell yeah. them, you know, you are so wrapped up in yourselves. You, you know, why don't you try to notice other people for a change? Mm-hmm. And I think that that really plays out in an interesting way through the rest of the episode. This idea of are they noticing? Who is noticing each other? Who is getting angry at who? By the end of the episode, we see that Shinji is trying really hard to help Misato with their operation. The uh, Asuka accuses him of being a little bit too over the top when he gets excited at the prospect of a steak dinner in response for yeah. saving the world, um, yep. or at least saving Nerve headquarters. And he says, "Well, what, what's wrong with it? If it helps her do her operation better, um, you know, clearly he doesn't care that much about a steak dinner. Both both the kids are kind of meh about it once she walks away." He says that so that she'll feel better about herself. Yeah. By the end of the episode, we see that not only is Shinji starting to consider other people more, but so is Asuka. She is the one who organizes a trip for them to all go out for ramen instead. Not only because she is concerned about Masato's pocketbook Mm -hmm. uh, and bank account, but she also wants Rei to be there. And the only way they'll get Rei there is if they go someplace that doesn't have meat. And actually, it's a it's an interesting parallel because Ray wasn't at the first party, right? Yeah. yeah, and so the fact that they get Ray to go out with them too, that just shows a great deal of I'm afraid to say compassion because I'm not sure Asuka is quite capable of empathizing, but maybe she mm. is. Maybe this is a, a big moment for her again, where she's realizing it's not just about me and what I want. If I want other people involved, I need to give a little. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think all of that is right, more or less. Like, I think that like the kids are a little bit in their own heads. Um, I I think understandably to some oh, degree. Like, you know, there's a lot of weight on their shoulders, but the fact that they are reaching out to Masato and like showing a kind of respect and a kind of um, conscientiousness to her is is good to see that they're a little beside themselves. The thing that kind of that kind of like sticks in my mind is the one that notices that Masato has been promoted is actually Kensuke. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he only notices because he sees the insignia on her collar. Right. And because he's a, uh, a military otaku. Masato just kind of waves it off. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not a big deal for her. It seems like she's almost not ashamed of it, but it's not a big deal. She doesn't want to be seen any differently because of it. Right. That's why, like, all these other things that happen along the way is like, uh, it, like of the kids, like, reaching out to all the kind of stuff. It's like... Okay, sure. It's this weird little pantomime, though, mm-hmm. that she doesn't necessarily. She already knows what she needs to do in this mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, this this crazy looking angel is you know, about to bombard Nerve headquarters, and she's made the call. I don't know. It seems that she doesn't need it, or she doesn't. I think she appreciates it, but I don't necessarily think that it was something she needed. Oh, and I think no. the kids are the kids are reading the situation like kids, and I think they are. I guess doing their best. I don't know the right way to put it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I absolutely don't think any of them realize that she doesn't care about this. Hmm. Um, you know, just even the fact that they're having a celebration for her when yeah. she hasn't made a big deal about it at all, didn't even tell anybody that she'd been promoted, shows that they're not quite on the same level about that. Yeah, I just thought that that was interesting that they get accused of not caring about anyone mm. else and then clearly take steps. I, I mean, th- there was also the things like, well, of course they didn't notice. Masato didn't tell her and they, they don't recognize military insignias. Right. Kensuke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. But, but, but maybe I they the should. I think. I mean, they are maybe they should. working for a top secret military yeah. organization. Yeah, there there is that, rank. That's a valid point. <laughs> uh, the other thing that I wanted to comment on is this concept of making miracles happen. Mm, yeah. So that kind of ties back into this religious imagery and this idea of faith versus certainty. You know, when Masato is just just to to set it up, they are Masato is talking about this. Um, Plan this crazy plan that she has that has a point zero 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 one percent chance of actually working. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and Ritsuko are cleaning up in the bathroom as women do. Uh, there are a lot of scenes of the two of them washing their hands in the bathroom and talking together, yeah. uh, which is interesting. But um, and Ritsuko says, "You know, do you are you really going to go through with this?" Masato says, I have to, it's my job. And Ritsuko yeah. calls her on it. She says, mm, is this really about your job? I think this is about your personal vendetta against the angels. Yeah. You might say, don't make others suffer for your personal hatred. Exactly. <laughs> um, and, and Masato, in the course of that conversation, says, you know, you need to, the only miracles that happen are the ones that you make happen. Um, mm. Or she might say that to the children later on come to think of it because later because then when they're there in the command center 
the, the things seem to be at beginning dicier and dicier. And they ask, so th- this plan that you have where, where you're putting the Evas, what is this based on? She says, intuition. And everyone just yeah. looks at her. <laughs> yeah. And Asuka says, our miracle is slipping further and further away. And Shinji says, yeah. you know, she plays the lottery, but she hasn't won yet. <laughs> but this whole idea that Masato has said that she's putting her faith, she's gambling on the Evas. Yeah. Um, and by extension the children to make to yeah. to save everything. But she's also saying if we want to, we have to make it happen. There's no which is interesting for a woman who wears a cross around her neck. Yeah. Well, I mean I think I think the cross is more of a keepsake. I think so too. Father would give to. But yeah, I mean, the idea of like this very long shot chance and that, you know, you're going on instinct, you're going on gut. I mean, again, it's it's a I mean, there was science involved, certainly, because uh, the Magi had done calculations. Um, yes, the Magi has done calculations. Yeah, the, the chance of it actually working out was basically zero. Yeah, basically zero. She's like, well, we're going to make this happen. There's two things about that that are kind of interesting. And it's like, number one is that. It's hope, like in, in a very bizarre kind of way. Mm-hmm. She's betting on hope. Like, I don't know if she necessarily thinks it's going to work, but it is very human to hope and is very human to, you know, the slimmest of threads you will hold on to mm-hmm. and, and try to make it work, it, you know, just muscle through it as best you can. I mean, to some degree, we see that with uh, some of the other characters. Shinji, again, holding on to his father's praise is the, th- the thinnest thread of his own sanity, I guess his own happiness one of those moments that like is very distinctly human mm-hmm. and in as much as as misato is kind of the human one of the more human characters in this show absolutely for lack of a better way of putting it she's not all business and she is like she does feel the other thing that i that i found kind of interesting is that uh you talk about that you know they're pinning all these hopes on the kids on the evas that's nerve like i mean misato is certainly but like Gendo is betting all his hopes for whatever plan he wants to accomplish on Nerve mm-hmm. and on the Evangelions. Like more than like he said multiple times, like the Evangelions are the key to the the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Again, it, I mean, it kind of fits into the same idea that it's a it's a slender rod of hope, but at the same time, I'm not sure the right way to put it, but it can be terrifying. It can be like you have to be in all in on this because that is what you have, mm-hmm. and, and if anything goes wrong. Like you can't do anything about it. Right. So. Yeah. And in the circumstances, I mean, what else were they going to do exactly? They could have yeah. abandoned, evacuated as Magi recommended, but then mm-hmm. what? Then they are left completely defenseless against the angels because yeah. Nerve headquarters and the Eva units would have been destroyed. So I think that probably the choice was the correct one. I mean, it worked. Uh, whether or not it was the correct choice, I mean, yeah, it was a very human choice. Yes, so I think is is the thing. Yeah, and that's something too that I'm thinking about is that of the two leading ladies here, Misato and Ritsuko. I mean, Ritsuko literally wears her lab coat everywhere mm. and is very rational and makes her decisions based on calculations. And Misato here is making her very big decisions based on intuition and gambles yeah. 
That is actually a great segue into the next episode, unless there's something else you wanted to talk about in in this one. Nothing else I wanted to okay. talk about in this one. Uh, while we're talking about Misato as the the human gambler, let's talk about uh, Ritsuko, the the science driven mm-hmm. woman. Uh, and I use those words very very deliberately. Um, so yeah, the next episode is called Angel Infiltration uh, slash Lilliputian Hitcher. Which I think is a reference to the Jonathan Swift book. Mm-hmm. It's a reference um, to the Lilliputians in, um, yeah, Gulliver's Travels. They're the Travels, they're the yeah. very tiny people. Kind of a weird image for this, but sure. I mean, I mean, it, you're dealing with very small things I'm in this. I'm pretty sure that that's the the idea is they're very very small beings that have infiltrated Nerve. Yeah, nano machines in particular. Are, I mean, I think of like gnomes. I don't necessarily think of like like almost bacteria is what. Oh, this is. yeah, this for is, sure. Uh, I don't think Gulliver. Regardless, Gulliver's travels involves nano machines, but so yeah, this is the uh, this is kind of the first Ritsuko centric episode that we've had uh, in a, in a very long time, where we see a lot about her. She doesn't really talk about herself, and she she kind of says that straight up. Mm-hmm. I don't talk about much about myself. I'm not interesting. But we see pretty clearly in this her motivations, whereas the last episode was why more or less Misato joined Nerve. This is more or less what Ritsuko does, why she joined Nerve. And the reason for that is her mother. This deals with the the Magi supercomputers, which are three interlinked networked computers, uh, Kaspar, uh, Balthazar, and Melchior, Mm -hmm. uh, named after the three Magi uh, from the Bible. Ritsuko, the first scene of this is Ritsuko... Uh, washing her face and saying, I'm growing older while she is immortal or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. It turns out that like her mother, her personality has sort of been implanted in these three supercomputers, different aspects of her personality. Mm -hmm. Ritsuko is kind of, she feels very differently about this, depending on what aspect of her mother she's talking about. And the the way it's broken up is that the, the pieces are, her mother as a scientist, her mother as a mother, and her mother as a woman, mm-hmm. which uh, uh, three, I guess, big kind of modes of being for um, or three ways that uh, Ritsuko's mother kind of identified mm-hmm. herself. Ritsuko like has to face this again, like the angel infiltrates the computers and she has to physically go into the computers, crawl into almost this pseudo womish thing like this biological uh, uh, computer or, or computer with biological parts, I should mm-hmm. say, basically directly interface with her mother again and directly face wh- how she feels about her mother again. Mm-hmm. Ritsuko is like the, the scientific one. Again, as you said, she's kind of ruthlessly pragmatic. Like she says in a small little monologue at the end that like she always, always admired her mother as a, uh, as a scientist. Mm-hmm. Like the biggest shoes she had to feel and the biggest place that she felt that she could compete with her mom was in, in, in pure science. I don't remember precisely what she says about her mother, the, the aspect of the mother part. Uh, I think she says that since she's never had a chance to be a mother, she can't really comment on that. Yeah, she passes it over very quickly, which, I mean, we can talk about that. But um, but the the key is that she refers to Caspar, which is her mother as a woman, 
this is the the computer that as the infection is going in all the way it that's the last one to give in and the last one to hold out and enact the counter code or there's a lot of weird techno babble going on there yeah it's a little inscrutable a little bit <laughs> but um Ritsuko says to almost with with like like venom in her voice that like that aspect her mother as a woman is the one that held on to the bitter end even in life mm-hmm. she is she sounds angry. Maybe angry is not the right word. She feels very strongly that her mother as a woman was unnecessary. Maybe I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase it. I don't know. Well, continue what you're thinking. I have a slightly different read on that. I mean, I know some things about Ritsuko. They're coming up about her past and all that kind of stuff. Um, So there's, there's like actual events that happened that Ritsuko would be angry at her mother about. Ritsuko is not really not as feminine or or as outwardly feminine as uh, some other characters on this. Misato is, you know, uh, she wears heels now, Um, (laughs) you know, that kind of thing. But again, Ritsuko has kind of given herself over to the job of being a scientist Mm -hmm. um, fully and completely. I think she kind of views that as sentimentality. She, she views it as a kind of distraction from like what the real um, what her real purpose is, which is to be a scientist, which is not a healthy way to, to look at things. Like, I mean, like we are, we are more than one thing in all of ourselves. And this is Ritsuko showing that like, she has a certain kind of black and white thinking or a certain kind of tunnel vision uh, when it comes to how she views herself. Mm-hmm. And that just so happens to be her quote unquote womanhood. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of loath to talk about it in depth because like I can't really speak to the experience of being a woman, <laughs> but like I, I but I'm interested in it only in as much as that she is denying a part of herself. Mm-hmm. Like she is denying that like these are things that um that belong to her. And you can even make the case for the mother aspect. Like she has overseen this operation for quite some time. Like she has a she has a mentee mm-hmm. um, in the beginning of this episode who is not a child but uh, someone that she has uh, like a, a kind of guardianship over and has taught you know passed on her knowledge to. She seems to really just be walling that off. I don't know. I think she is the worst for it. I mean, you said you had a different read on that. Yeah. Well, I definitely think my. I think you've thought about this a lot more than I did. <laughs> Fair. Uh, analyzed it more, I should say. I definitely. So I. She definitely was, I don't think she was angry at the end when she said that. I definitely remember her saying that she did not like, she was angry at that part of her mother. Mm -hmm. You know, that her mother as a woman was the part that she couldn't stand. And then when she comments on how it figures that that would, that's the part that would hold on to the bitter end. I vaguely remember she says that almost with a smile. Not quite, but a little bit, with a little bit of a chuckle. Like, hmm. yeah, that would figure. But it's it's touching to me that when she does, when they do open up Caspar and she crawls inside and her mother's notes are there, she is genuinely grateful to her mother. Yeah, absolutely. For having left all those notes. There's no sense that she is begrudging her anything as she starts the work that they need to do to save themselves. But that's the aspect but, of her mother that's a scientist. She left behind like cheat codes, more or less. Yes, that's true. So maybe that's all that is. I didn't really come to any conclusions about how she felt about her mother or why she felt 
the way she does about her mother as a woman. Mm-hmm. I felt like we don't have enough evidence about who her mother was, and we haven't seen enough of Ritsuko's inner life to know what she thinks of womanhood. You know, the glimpses we've got of her as a woman have been fierce and powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, her her and Masato standing up against the men on the council of that rival organization. Yep. That was not just her as a scientist. That was her standing firm as an independent, strong woman who can hold her own. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen her flirting with Kaji. Playfully. Yeah, playfully, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think that there was any malice in that uh, or any ulterior motives. Yeah. Um, but, you know, clearly she's not above such things. Is it, oh, it's later episodes where she hangs out with Misato and Kaji. So I guess I can't talk about that yeah, yet. Yeah, not yet. I mean, she certainly, but, got a, she certainly got humanity. I'm not trying to imply that, like, she's robotic but. No, no, but I do think that she has, there's more to her than we've seen thus far mm. in terms of her attitudes towards womanhood. I didn't feel like I was at the point to make any judgments on what she thinks about that or why her mother would play into that. So I was a little confused, Yeah, I, I guess. I mean, I think, I, I think, yeah, this raises more questions than it answers uh, this episode mm-hmm. about uh, Ritsuko. Uh, and it certainly is foreshadowing um, some stuff, but it definitely shows a vulnerability that she has. Again, just the fact that Ritsuko has a vulnerability is noteworthy enough because she seems very much the on top of everything kind of scientist, which mm-hmm. humanizing the scientist a little bit. Yeah. And the fact that she talks about this, yeah. um, that it's not done in some sort of you know flashback or... In a monologue, but that she's actually talking about it with Masato yeah. um, is a rare moment of openness yeah. for her. Um, and that's one of the things that I've liked about these episodes has been just the amount of vulnerability that the characters have shown. Um, there's been a lot of actual physical nakedness, too. Yeah. Um, and I think that, that that goes hand in hand, this idea of vulnerability. One of these episodes, I believe, is the one... Is one of these the one where they're doing the dummy plug test? That's this episode. This episode. Okay, so the children are in their... Nothing. Nothing <laughs> right now. They're they're off in their... Um, I don't even know where, where they are exactly. But they're sitting yeah. there. They have no idea of anything that happened. At one point, Shinji says, what's been going on out there? Yeah. Um, they were ejected and they end up in a lake. Um, just to get yeah, away from well, the that, so I was confused about that too when they I don't didn't remember them being ejected. Uh, they didn't show it, but at one point Ritsuko just kind of yells like "eject them." Uh, oh, okay, it, it's a very quick thing. Yeah, so they're literally not wearing anything. Yep. They've had to walk through a clean room in front of one another, not wearing anything, which Hasuka does not love. Yeah, <laughs> not at all. Uh, and then we've seen shots of Misato in the previous episode changing mm. and getting dressed literally in front of a mirror mm. after having flashbacks to the second impact and her father rescuing her. Literally There's showing been her a scar. L- literally showing her scar. There's been a lot of raw vulnerability from the characters these episodes. Yeah. Yeah. We're beginning to have their personalities laid bare a little bit more. Most of them, anyway. There's certain. Uh, and everyone's still going to have their secrets uh, mm-hmm. as we go through it. 
that kind of ties into that, that idea of humanity ties into what I wanted to talk about, which is, as I mentioned before, this idea that the Magi computers have human personalities running them. Yeah. Despite this notion that science is going to be the thing that saves us all, mm. uh, the, the very technology that they are using to save us all, to run their city, to pilot the EVAs is all based on human personality and human mm. um, conflict. Yeah. You know, Ritsuku's mother intentionally programs three aspects of her personality into three different computers so that that inner conflict that all humans have would be maintained in this logic circuit. Mm -hmm. So my question was whether this contradicts the views that we've seen so far about technology or whether it further supports them. When weirdly enough, when, when you were talking about this, I kind of flashed back to another movie, um, war games, uh, the Matthew Broder mm -hmm. and that, that whole movie is about computers and humans and stuff like that as well. But there's one scene in particular where it's the very first scene where there is a, a nuclear strike coming in and there's two guys that have to turn the key at the same time to launch a counter strike and one guy won't mm -hmm. do it. And it is that human element that kind of saves the world quite literally in that sense. I mean, these Evangelions are technology to a large degree, but they utterly lack a, well, maybe they have a personality maybe uh, with this, this imprinting, but they don't necessarily have a, this is brought up in later episodes, but a soul. Like they don't necessarily have a sense of um, right and wrong. They have a, a mode of being, they have stimulus response, but I think that human element is that, that, that compassion or that, uh, morality, for lack of a better term, that really is like the North Star for a lot of this. Uh, mm -hmm. And North Star for a lot of what Nerve does. Like, it is technology, but not pure technology, like the JA. It is something hu not human, but organic, I guess, but not fully organic because it still has to be controlled by humans. Mm -hmm. Like, everything leads back to a human uh, at the core of it. It just so happens that it's 14 year olds, unfortunately. Uh, yes. That, but like, and that's interesting, too, because they comment on some point about why it has to be 14-year-olds or children. Do they actually say why or do they, are they, no. they pondering it? No, they don't even ponder it. They just say that it just that's just the way it is. Hmm. Um, because, I mean, it's they're intentionally not putting adults into these robots. They're yeah. putting children in. Uh, they're seeking out children. They're called the children, like first children, yeah. second children, third children. So that that we don't know why that is yet, but that's a point beside the matter. Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of the imagery of going into the Evangelion is like returning to the womb, so like you can mm -hmm. sort of see it. But I mean, that 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 symbolism—that's not necessarily a practical reason why they have to be fourteen-year-olds, right? But because it would certainly make a lot more sense to have adults with fully formed brains and mm. reasoning be the ones that are piloting these things. Yeah, from an outside perspective, there's some other reason that they're not doing that but we don't know what that reason is yet when you look at like the the, the pace of technological progress um uh one of the the critiques i have of it is that it, like it's almost like progress for progress's sake uh mm -hmm. in our in our modern world but without purpose and mm -hmm. nerve and the evangelians are progression with purpose and their progression with the human literally at the center of what they're doing whether or not they live up to it, that's a whole other thing. But I think that 
the, the fact that that is part of their design ethos, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. it makes this more centered. Mm-hmm. Like, it makes this more than just a robot show. Um, right. At least in my estimation. Right. And you made a good point earlier about the JA, the the EVA uh, competitor that mm-hmm. was pure technology. Yeah. Um, and how that failed spectacularly. Now, whether or not it would have failed spectacularly without Gendo's yeah. interference. Metaphor is um, a bit muddled, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> is is unclear. But there's certainly are saying something about the need for humanity to be involved in the technology, that technology that's completely devoid of human input is flawed. Yeah, and and dangerous, potentially. So I'm very interested to see how that this notion of technology and humanity fused into one or organic Mm. matter, um, how it plays out for the rest of the show. Yeah, well, I have a feeling that we're going to be getting uh, quite a bit more uh, yes, of and, exploration of that topic. And it's interesting because I have vague recollections of where this all goes in the end, mm-hmm. but I don't remember specific plot points, Yeah, um, especially with these episodes going forward. Um, these are the ones that I hadn't haven't seen at all since mm. 18 years yeah. ago. So it's interesting to me putting all these pieces together um, and seeing how the picture falls together. Well, before we start talking about the future, um, uh, is there anything else in this episode uh, that you wanted to talk about? Oh, I actually had something. Um, Okay. This is actually, I'm not sure what it symbolizes, but I thought it it was worth pointing out. So far, this is the only angel that hasn't been killed by an Evangelion. This is. That's true. Uh, it's it's very like the Evangelions are kind of secondary to this whole process here. <laughs> and actually, this is funny because when they launch, when Gendo says we're launching the Evas now, mm. like how are we going to fight the Angel without the Evas? Yeah, like, what do you think you're going to do with the Eva against nano machines that are hacking into your computer? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can't the, fight. They, that. They're useless. You can't you can't shoot bacteria. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, like. To be fair, like there's there's ways you can kind of go around it. Like the like the machine slash organic personality stuff did defeat it. Caspar, um, Aritzko's mom, did mm-hmm. com- did defeat it. So there's some there's some logic there, but it was really kind of more or less this angel was defeated by Aritzko. I'm in, I'm inclined to just kind of write it off because like they just did it because this was the this is a good story. I don't know. Like, I don't know what that symbolizes. Like, are the Evas not really needed? I don't think they're trying to say that. I think they are uh, showing the danger of the angels and the evolution of the angels a little bit more. Yeah, maybe. I think that, um, I think it ties nicely into the the episode that we're going to be starting with next week. Mm. Yeah. So stay that. tuned. Well, uh, that's going to bring us to the end of, of these three episodes. Um, so... Uh, what did you think of these episodes, kind of broadly? Uh, and did a moment stick out for you? So I really loved them. Mm. Um, I liked that we're kind of beyond the initial character building arc, which I enjoyed. Mm. But that now we're looking a little bit more deeply at the technology and the science. I definitely enjoyed just the three angels that were in these episodes yeah. were some of my favorites out yep. of all the ones we've seen so far. 
Um, I think that the that first one, the the spider thing, yeah, that was that was something That's a else. Creepy ass motherfucker. <laughs> exactly. Oddly enough, though, my favorite episode, favorite moment of these episodes was just that moment at the end of episode twelve, where Masato's having ramen with the kids. Yeah, it's just so normal. Yeah, and seeing all three of them, even Ray is out and enjoying herself. Mm. Yeah, just th- this moment of normalcy and friendship. For all that the show is really cool and has some really cool um, philosophical content, I really just have gotten attached to the characters and I want them happy. So yeah. ha- seeing them having moments of happiness when I know that it probably won't last makes me makes me happy. I mean, there may be a lesson in that. It's like, you know, life can be kind of hellish in a lot of ways, but there is those little moments that you treasure forever, really. Maybe. So, I, I, yeah. I hope, I hope those <laughs> so what about do. you? Um, well, I mean, I, I sort of had the same, like, in the previous episode, we I talked a little bit about, like, these are very Monster of the Week-ish kind of things. And this that kind of continues here, uh, at least with the first episode, I think. it. I mean, there's definitely things in these episodes that I, I really, really liked. I really liked seeing the, uh, again, diving into more of Masato and Ritsuka's um, uh, backstory and understanding their motivations a bit. I think the, probably my favorite part, um, it, it was just this little moment in the middle of the, uh, not the ramen party, but the uh, the first uh, promotion uh, party, I guess. Yeah. There's a moment where it, it's actually kind of similar, where like there's this hustle and bustle going on all around the, the table where people are talking and it's just this boisterous like kids at the table talking about like random shit. And it seems like, it seemed like one of my family dinners for to some degree, <laughs> but there was also this moment where like the, the long shot just kind of focused on Shinji who is just not kind of talking, just kind of listening. And then it cuts to both him and Masato doing the same exact thing. And I liked that little bit of like just quiet kinship between them. Um, mm. You know, they have very different reasons to do this. Like, I really liked seeing that, like, Shinji having almost a a role model of sorts in, in Misato, who wasn't something completely different for him that he aspires to, but someone who is a lot more like him and understands what he's feeling more. That was just a really nice little, like, encapsulation of it. That's a sweet moment. And then, you know, as you had said or I think you wrote down, Misato turns to him and says, you know, do you still have trouble with times like this? Yeah. And it's this, of all the things that she could have been focusing on in that moment, she's paying attention to Shinji and what he's going through. Yeah. And it's really sweet. It very much is. Like, he's got a caretaker. And, like, he really needed one. And he's, yes, he's got a very absolutely. good one. Uh, so, yeah. So, uh, what are you looking forward to in these episodes coming up uh, as we head out of the action arc? So now that we know a little bit more about the technology that Nerve has, how it's been developed, I want to know more. Mm. I want to know more about the nature of the Evangelion units. I want to know more about the angels Mm. um, and that weird connection that they seem to have with one another that we don't quite understand yet. Um, And I want to find out what in the world Gendo has planned. So the hardcore plot element type stuff. <laughs> yeah, you know, no big deal. Yeah, no, and no, no, I no. want everyone to have a happy ending in the midst of it all. I have some bad news for you. <laughs> Shh. 
no, I know. Spoilers. I know. Yeah, I, I definitely like the more I like get back into like hearing all these terms again, like second impact, Adam and uh, mm-hmm. all human mm-hmm. instrumentality project and all that kind of stuff. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm like, that's tickling like the little like unravel the knot mm-hmm. in the back of my head kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's bringing me back to the first time that I saw these in a lecture hall mm. in a building in the middle of campus with a bunch of friends. Yeah. And like, this is really, I'd seen some weird anime crap before this is not my first brush with it Mm. but this is the first time that i got to see it on a big screen really one of the first times i got to see it with other people yeah so it's bringing back kind of fond memories of what it's like to be able to share that experience of holy crap there's weird stuff going on i don't understand i mean now we have uh we've had uh, 20 years to think about it and the internet has had 20 years to think about it and there's Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. uh I won't say anything. I've been looking up some of the terms a little bit, so I, I know a little bit more about what's going on plot-wise uh, than mm-hmm. the actual stories. Right. I, that said, I still don't get it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Uh, I mean, I mean, like for me, like again, it's sort of similar what I'm looking forward to. Like you know, this is really the tilt, the like the the inflection point of Evangelion. Um, like we, this is the halfway mark. Like yeah, we've we've we're done setting up. We're, we've already started to introduce some of the backstory and some of the motivations and stuff like that. But now I'm almost like, let's just go full anime weird. Like, let's go full uh, <laughs> into the strangeness of the of these episodes. And that's what I'm really looking forward to digging my teeth into. Not just in terms of plot, although that's a part of it. It's like, you know, the philosophical parts of it, uh, the psychological parts of it. Let's just really see where we can go with this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's really, really exciting to me. Cool. And that's uh, going to do it for this episode of Evangel again. Next week, we're going to be talking about uh, episodes 14 through 16, uh, which is the start of what's called the Descent Arc, which, yeah, that just tells you you're in for a friggin' ride. You can email the podcast at evangelagain at gmail.com, and you can find us on Twitter at evangelagain. Uh April, where can people find you? They can find me, as always, at A-L-Cowette, which is spelled C-A-O-U-E-T-T-E, on both Twitter and Instagram. What about you, Mike? Uh, I am at Gillenblade on Twitter, G-A-L-E-N-B-L-A-D-E. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Uh, If you want to help out the show, uh, please leave us a review uh, or tell someone about the show. You know, really uh, would really be appreciated. Or email us. We like getting emails. Our next podcast is going to be up on Wednesday, July 31st. But until then, we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.